Support for this week's episode is provided by Downtown Ithaca Alliance, working for the community to make Downtown Ithaca a vibrant place for all. Information about events, local businesses, and more at downtownithaca.com. I'm Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author Erica Bauermeister. She's the author of five novels, including The Scent Keeper, The School of Essential Ingredients, and her latest novel, No Two Persons. It's the story of one author and nine strangers who read her book and the way the book affects each of them. It's a love letter to those who love to read and a beautiful exploration of how books can change lives. She joins me from her home in Port Townsend, Washington. Erica, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. I wanted to try to explain what the book was to readers myself, but I'd rather hear from you. Tell us a little bit about this book and what it's about. Well, um, it started actually um, with my experiences um, both as a teacher of, of literature and then also as a writer who was meeting with book clubs. And I really came to the firm conclusion that no two persons ever read the same book. I mean, we all read the same words but the story that we read has everything to do with who and where we are at that moment when we open the cover and start reading. So it takes, um, so that concept turned into a novel, which is basically in some ways interconnected short stories. It's the author writing her book, the book going out into the world and being encountered by nine very different readers, each of whom gets their own chapter, their own story, but all of them are connected in ways that they don't even realize. Is that the framework you knew you wanted to do when you started writing the book? Yeah, I often get the frameworks first, um, particularly when it's interconnected stories, the way I, I tend to write. And it's almost as if you're building a house with a lot of empty rooms and you just wait for the characters to show up and thank heavens they always do. You write a lot about people, usually strangers and the connections and relationships that form between them. But in No Two Persons, those connections are subtle. And it's that novel within the novel, which is named Theo, which is the common denominator. So I guess compared to your past books, was this a little more challenging to write? In some ways, yes. I mean, I think that's a very insightful um, point you've got there because um, in the past, my my books have had a rather firm and obvious center. So it was a cooking school or a house or a group of friends. And I could have done that in this case. I could have made all of the readers be in the same book club or I could have made it be a book that's passed through multiple people. Uh, but that wasn't the point that I wanted to make, which is that we are all connected by this communal act of reading. And we are all connected in ways that we really probably will never see or understand ourselves. And so because of that, the connections between these characters, they need to be strangers. The connections need to be more gossamer. And it is the book. Um, and the story that's contained within it, that becomes the connector between them. So how did these characters form for you? Because they are so different from each other. 
<laughs> they are. And they needed to be, right? Because I wanted them to be strangers. And I wanted the readers to be, my readers to be able to see that there are connections between people who are so obviously different from each other. Um, you know, when I'm when I'm hoping for characters, when I when I have that idea for the book and I am waiting for the characters to show up, I often go on what I call a character hunt, which is that I go into particularly the nonfiction sections of bookstores um, or I go on walks or I read the New York Times or Atlas Obscura emails that I get every day. And I I look for the thing that shimmers. And that's really it's as if that thing contains a story, an idea that's too big for its container. And so that could be a book on the sense of smell. Um, in the case of one of the characters for No Two Persons, it was a book about freediving. And I just became fascinated with the subject. And more than that, I became fascinated by who would want to do that? What kind of person would want to do that? And then how would that person find this book, Theo? And how would Theo change that person's life? And that happened over and over. It was in, in some ways... You know, the pandemic came in in useful because um, I had nothing to do but research, honestly. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there was a lot of reading that went on during that period of time. You know, I've read a few of the reviews of the book, which, you know, just in case you don't know, they're overwhelmingly positive. Um, and one of the things that keeps popping up is that people want to read Theo now. How much <laughs> of your novel within a novel do you know? Um, well, I know a fair amount. Um, there's this little secret, which I'll tell you because you, you have made the effort to interview me and I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> but uh, back when I wrote The Scent Keeper, there was a character there named Theo. I mean, sorry, called Fisher. And um, originally, uh, Scent Keeper was told from three perspectives, Emmeline, Fisher, and her father. And, and by the time I was done, it was just Emmeline's perspective. And so a lot of Fisher's story was cut and some parts that I really, really loved. And um, they just didn't make any sense anymore, given Emmeline's trajectory. And so after that book was done, a lot of readers wrote to me and they said, we want to know more about Fisher. We want to know more about Fisher. And I realized that I had this other book in my head and I didn't want to write it. But then when I was coming up with what book would my new character, Alice, write, all of a sudden Fisher's story made a whole lot of sense, that alternate story that never happened. Um, and so there is actually a scene that is in both Scentkeeper and in No Two Persons for those readers that like to go on literary Easter egg hunts. I'm one of those nerds that loves doing that. So I'm going to go back and reread <laughs> Scent Keeper now with this in mind. Um, one of the things I loved about the different characters in No Two Persons is that everyone is broken in some way. But at the same time, I think everybody has this own strength that maybe this book helps them tap into what is it about writing those kind of characters? Because I think there's some similarities with your past works. What is it about that that is so, that you're drawn to? Well, I think the broken people are the most interesting ones, you know, um, when it's it sort of interestingly, um, like reading books. For me, when a book is absolutely perfect, um, I enjoy it. But I'm more intrigued by the ones that aren't entirely perfect, because then I can really look into them and see, okay, how did that work? How might that change? And it's kind of the same way with people. If they're 
if they seem absolutely perfect, well, they're finished, they're done. It's, there's nothing to explore particularly. But when someone is broken, there's a chance for change. Um, there's a chance for exploration. And I think there's a chance for hope. And my books tend to lean in that direction, um, which is why even though I tackle some really difficult subjects, um, I think in the end, people feel as if um, there is hope. Yes, I, I actually reread the end of the book, which I'm not going to talk about because I don't want to spoil that for people here. Um, I reread it this morning. So thanks for the good morning cry again, by the way. Um, <laughs> and I think that it was that connection that, you know, you you talk about these as a series of interconnected short stories, but these, these people in some ways weave in and out of at least one or two other characters' lives. So what was the process of, of bringing all of these different stories together when you were writing it? Well, and that's one of the, the beautiful things about that genre is that you really get to play with both, I have both complete freedom within the framework of any individual story. I mean, that's that character's story and they take it in the direction they want to go. And yet there's still this overarching organization and structure that requires a lot of very precise thinking. It's a lot like watchmaking in some ways. Um, and so what I wanted to make sure was that each character is connected to at least one other character. And sometimes those connections are very obvious, like a character will literally show up in another story. Um, and so I wanted it to be so that the readers who were kind of skimmers would have the ability to catch some of them, or even if they didn't catch any of them, it would still be okay. But then there are a lot of ones that are much more subtle that are for, again, your geeky readers, you know, that want to dig in and, and find where an image is recreated in two different stories, a line is recreated in two different stories. Um, a character is a very, very background part of another character's story. Um, and they'll never even know that connection. Um, mm. Because I think we are interwoven in those ways. You know, all you have to do is get get in a, a room of big people and you're going to find connections that you have with total strangers. Do you have a favorite character from this book? Oh, gosh. You know, the thing about when I write characters is... I don't have to like every one of them, but I love every one of them. And I've, I made myself a promise that I would never write a character that I couldn't understand and love as a human being. And so as an end result, they are all favorites. There mm -hmm. are some always that I would go to the mat for. Um, William, the caretaker is, is a character I became, had involved sounds weird, deeply invested in, I think, partly because it took me a long time to figure out what the book would mean to him. And when th that finally revealed itself to me, I was I was so intrigued by that. Um, it's a very unusual way for a book to interact with a human being. And, um, and I loved it. And what I love about it too, is that when you read reader reviews, there are people who are firmly team William, like he is their favorite character. And other ones who go, I just don't get that story. And I think that is wonderful because that's the point of the book, right? Mm. I see books as springboards. They are the start of discussion. They are a way that we can talk about differences of opinion with curiosity instead of animosity. And there are so few places in this world right now where you can do that. And so every time somebody has a disagreement over which character they like the best, I've done my job right, because as long as they continue that discussion into the why of it, 
and they learn something about that other person they're talking with. I, I think I'm team Nola. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, my, she's a homeless teenager and she is, um, she's very dear to my heart too. Yeah. One of the characters, an artist named Miranda, um, part of her story is that there's an abandoned house near her that is going to be torn down and she is an artist and she slowly starts to take bits and pieces of this old house that's going to be turned down and she ultimately turns these pieces into a sculpture and the way you wrote about that house in particular the language that you used reminded me a lot of your memoir uh, house lessons where you wrote about renovating at home and just how you wrote about home itself do you think that some of your own experiences has has found its way into characters like Miranda or into other characters in the book? Oh, I think it always does. You know, I think I I agree with that line that authors are all their characters and they're none of their characters. I don't base any of my characters on people that I know. I made myself that promise as well back when I started writing fiction. But I think that there are so many emotional resonances um, oftentimes I don't see them till the story is over. And I realize that that story taught me something I needed to learn. Um, other times they are bits and pieces from my life. Um, you know, things that I, I'm curious about exploring. So yes, I mean, anytime I can write about a house, I'm going to write about a house because mm. I, am, I am fascinated by them. And I think they do houses so often shimmer. They so often hold stories that I think it's, it's always, uh, just fun to write about them. I also loved that she was able to take uh, pieces of this house that was ending the near of its life and turn it into something else. Um, and what's interesting is that the role that the book Theo plays in that particular person's life is very physical and yeah. very different, I think, than than the other characters. Well, and that, you know, I wanted the book to both find their their readers in ways that were as dissimilar as they were. Um, and I also wanted it to mean things that were differently. And there's also one, the opening line of Theo is one that is interpreted radically differently by several different characters. Uh, and and I wanted that to be sort of a microcosm of the whole book. You know, this is this is um, this is how differently we can all see things. Um, and I also think that what Miranda does with that sculpture, where she takes the bits of this house and she creates something new, is also microcosm, because that's what we do when we read. We take the bits that make sense to us and we create our own story from that. And that's why each of our readings is completely different often. The uh, line that you refer to, wandering is a gift given only to the lost, that quote pops up throughout these mm -hmm. stories. Is there something especially meaningful about that to you? You know, that's an interesting line. I wanted it to be a not great line. I wanted it to be the line that a 25 year old who was deeply invested in this story would write. Also because that line means something particular to her. Um, and it's a case where she wouldn't kill her darling. You know, there's a moment where her professor goes, what about that first line? And she says, no, I won't cut it. Um, you know, because of that, though, then that it goes out into the world. And that's the line that speaks to the literary assistant and draws her into the book. It, it makes her feel as if that book has spoken directly to her. 
Now, in contrast, the book reviewer reads that first line and says, that's a plagiarism of Tolkien. In, not direct, but way too close, right? And that sets off this terrible review that he writes, very scathing review. Um, and then Miranda, the artist, reads it and says, oh, my mom sent me this book. That's the first line. She thinks I'm lost, right? And she's ticked off because she sees it as a hidden message from her mother. So, you know, you've, it, it's... It was fun playing with that because I've seen that same thing happen um, many times with books. And so I just wanted to make it one crystal clear example of how 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 it can happen. You know, it's funny, the review little chapter kind of pops up about midway through the book. And I was so offended by that review. I was just like, are you not reading the same book I'm reading? Like, uh-huh. And, and, and the timing of that, the timing of that was very important because I wanted you to connect with the book before you read that review. I wanted you to be appalled by that review. Yeah. Um, but oftentimes, you know, those reviews are the first thing that anybody reads. And I wanted yeah. readers to remember, you know what, that's just one person's opinion, whether it's written anonymously or not. We all have opinions of books. Um, when I was a book reviewer and I did that for several years, um, one of the things I liked was that the reader's guides we wrote, we signed our reviews so that you would know. So you could say, oh, I read, you know, I like books like this person does, you know, same similar books. So I can go and look for other books they've liked, um, which is kind of what Goodreads turned into, honestly. Um, but yeah. this was predating that. I love that No Two Persons is a love letter to books. Yes, but it is about that experience of reading and the profound impact that reading a book can have on a person's life. Is there a book that you have read that gave you that kind of moment in your own life? <laughs> I was asked this book recently and, and it, it turned into this odd discussion because the book that I chose is The Little House by Virginia Burton, which is a children's book. Uh, but my mom was a big reader and she made sure we were all supplied with lots and lots of books. And The Little House is a book about a house that is built out in the country. And it is this happy, wonderful house. And over time, it falls apart. And the city comes in and moves around it. And then eventually, it's you know, like the generations down, owners find it again and take it out to the country again. And I think that that book taught me two things. One is you can make your own home. And two, you need to care for things and you need to take care of them. Um, and I think those are hallmarks of everything I write, honestly, and most of how I approach my life. Now, the title of the novel comes from a quote that's been attributed to Edmund Wilson, who was an American literary critic. Uh, the quote is, no two persons ever read the same book. But you have found a different source for that quote. Tell us about that. I have, which is, you know, rule number one is never trust everything you see on the internet. Um, because if you look up on the internet, it is attributed to Edmund Wilson everywhere. It's on t-shirts, it's on posters, it's everywhere. Um, I, I cannot find, nor can anyone else um, who's really looked into it, ever find a place where he said it. He said two things were very close to it. He said, we can never read the book the author originally wrote which is the same concept, but it has to do with the reader and the writer. And he also said um, along that idea of one can never step in the same river twice. And that's the idea that you can't, you, if you read a book now and you read the book 10 years from now, they would mean two different things. <clears throat> Again, very similar concept, 
but not the same thing. And there actually is a woman, madam, and I'm not sure how you pronounce her last name, but I think it's Swetchine. Uh, she was a Russian noblewoman who moved to Paris and had a had a literary salon there with very, you know, Alexis de Tocqueville and all sorts of huge thinkers. Uh, and after she died, her works were collected. And that was, the line was, no two persons ever read the same book or saw the same picture. Uh, and that was published 26 years before Edmund Wilson was even born. So I think she gets credit. Nice. Good job on that. Um, <laughs> well, I always like finding the women that people haven't listened to. Yes. So it makes me happy. Yes. Do you as a writer uh, think that you're a people watcher? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, again, you're looking for the thing that shimmers, right? And people shimmer all over the place. So I guess my follow-up to that is then you wrote this book during the pandemic. <laughs> what was that period of isolation without the people watching like for you? I think again, that has that, that was the research. That was the reading. I had to find them in other places. Um, and I do think that, you know, while that this book ends in December of 2019, and I did that on purpose because, you know, we were about to enter a period of profound isolation and yet each of these characters, they are very isolated. You know, if you look at it, there aren't a lot of families. There aren't a lot of marriages. You know, a lot of these people are maybe with one or two other people. Um, the thing that that gives them community is this book um, and the relationship that they have with this book. And that's very much what I was doing at the time. I think it's what a lot of us were doing at the time. And I think that's why bookstores did so well, is that I think people rediscovered the community that you find through books and reading. And if nothing else came out of the pandemic, at least we got that. Now, your first book, The School of Essential Ingredients, came out shortly before you turned 50. Was writing something that you came to later in life, or did it just take a while to get there? Oh, it took forever to get there. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I started... Uh, you know, I, I submitted my first memoir for potential publication when I was 33. Um, and I tried consistently to get published uh, throughout that time. Um, mostly I was writing memoirs and it really wasn't until um, I got the idea for School of Essential Ingredients and all of a sudden thought, oh, I'm going to write fiction, which I had never thought I would be able to write. I had, I had never had characters show up in my head. They were always based on people I knew and that didn't work very well. And then I got the idea for that book. And again, it was that empty house. And I just trusted that the characters would move into the rooms. And I don't know why at the age of 43, they started showing up. Um, we could blame premenopause. I have no idea. But all of a sudden I had uh, characters and they have consistently shown up. And I'm so grateful because it is it's just a joy to live in their lives. Since then, you've published six books. So looking back at the last, I guess it's been 15 years almost since your first book was published. What do you think you've learned most about writing? You know, I think the most important thing I learned, and I think the difference between my early writing and my later writing was that I used to think that a good writer had answers. And I just don't think that's the case anymore because I think an answer um, is is done. It's flat. It's sitting on the page, you know. Uh, and a good question, a good question opens things up. 
Um, so a good question is who would want a free dive? You know, a good question is how would that book affect that person? And when I start writing, I don't want to know that answer um, because the smarter part of my brain is the back subconscious part of my brain where they say, scientists say 95% of your energy is going into your subconscious brain. And I want to allow that brain forward. And it doesn't come forward if it's an answer, but it comes forward if it's a question. And it, it helps me um, access those interesting bits um, that I haven't been connecting or haven't been paying attention to. Would you read a little from the book for us? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, this is the very beginning of the book, actually. And we are being introduced to Alice, who is our young writer, uh, who will end up writing the book, Theo, uh, that will go out and meet all these different readers. At this point, she is still quite a young child, um, because I think that's where, where most writers begin, is in their early childhood. The story on Alice's computer screen had been finding its way into words for more than five years or maybe forever. Over that time, it had grown, changed, creaked, flown, gone silent, and then gained its voice again, its plot taking unexpected paths, its characters turning into people she hadn't thought they would be, just as she had. This glowing screen, the one constant, this story in all its iterations, now awaiting the last step, someone to say yes. She was young for a writer, barely 25, but in some ways Alice had always been old, always been watching, learning, searching for the things that people were not saying. Truth lies below the table. She knew this even as a child. If given the choice, she would have taken her dinner plate down into the cool, dark space beneath the tablecloth where she could watch her mother's fingers tighten along with the conversation. Watch her older brother's shoes point toward the exit even as their father interrogated him about his latest swim meet. Medals he did or didn't get. Effort he did or didn't expend. Children, of course, did not eat under the table, so for Alice, a tendency toward napkin dropping had to suffice. Why can't she keep that thing in her lap, her father would say to her mother. But you could learn so much more keeping your gaze down. Just as well for Alice, who had never liked meeting people's eyes. It always felt like looking into a jam-packed closet or opening the door to your own. In any case, her father preferred children who were respectful. When Alice had learned how to read, she'd discovered her own world far from their house in their eastern Oregon town. After Alice brought her choices home from the library, she'd opened their covers, smelling other children's meals and lives in the pages, and she would put her face in and blow, like a human smudging to make the stories hers. The year Alice turned nine, an, an author came to visit her school. It was on that day Alice understood for the first time in a way that was both slightly depressing and terribly exciting that books were written by people, real people, with mascara that flecked down onto the soft, pale curves of skin under the eyes and a sweater that was a bit too long on the sleeves. This woman at the front of the class, this not-quite-finished-looking woman, had written the book she was holding in her hand. Before this point, Alice had never met an actual author, and so it had been possible to pretend that they were no more real and thus as magical as the characters inside. But here was this woman telling the class that she wrote every day during these hours using this ordinary pen, that the characters were her friends, 
I live in their world when I am writing, the author said to the class. Yes, Alice thought, the breath catching in her throat. And in that moment, she changed her allegiance from magic to magician. Erica, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. Erica Bauermeister's latest book, No Two Persons, is available now. Coming up next week on Off the Page, we journey to Zululand in South Africa. I talk with Francoise Malby Anthony about her new book, The Elephants of Dula Dula. I hope you'll join me. Just a reminder that Off the Page doesn't exist without the support of listeners who donate to the program. Thank you so much if you've already given. You're making this show possible. If you'd like to send a few dollars our way, simply visit WSKG.org and click on Donate. Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Siracus. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go Off the Page.